Okay, I'm going to get back together if I can. Do take your seats and uh, don't forget to carry on your conversations as well after the service. Um, fantastic, thanks so much. If we haven't met before, I'm Will Vanderhart. I'm the associate Becca here. It's great to see you tonight. The lights are very bright. Um, it's very good to see you tonight and uh, very warm welcome if you're here um, for the first time particularly. We are continuing our series uh, on the desert and today we're looking at um, Jesus' baptism. If you've got a Bible either on your pew or on your device, we're looking at two passages tonight. Uh, so starting off in Matthew uh, chapter 3 and then we're whipping over uh, to 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. So Matthew 3 and then 1 Peter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then pushing over to 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteousness for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the saints in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Well, last week we talked a bit about John the Baptist, and um, this week we're back with John the Baptist in a way, but in a slightly unusual way in terms of critiquing his baptism. And I, I want us to sort of think about this idea of, of two baptisms, in fact, three baptisms in Scripture. We've got John's baptism, Jesus' baptism, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to say that unless we understand the baptism that John was performing, we can't understand the baptism that Jesus uh, was initiated through. And um, we, we think about baptism in a sense uh, as the sign of cleansing, uh, a, a sign of, of, of the restoration, an intention to be transformed. Uh, and it's very much that intention. If you remember, we were there in the, uh, in the desert and John the Baptist was calling people out of the cities in order that they might be restored to God. But his call was very much a personal call. Uh, the desire was that you might leave behind all those things that are distracting you Oops. and breaking. And, <laughs> and actually leaning on this idea that, that you might turn away, find space to return to the Lord primarily. But John's baptism couldn't offer anything more than an intention. Come out of the city, come and get clean, get in the waters, reorder your life and put God back in the center again. Now, it's a powerful call and I think last week, you know, I felt like, yes, we made, we made sort of progress in the reordering of our life. 
to create space for God. And I hope many of you sort of took away what we discussed and were like, ah, yes, you know, everything that Kate brought about getting into the wilderness and kind of getting reordered was something that we could get a hold of and go, yeah, I need to find space in my life in order to reconnect with God. And God is not impotent in the waiting. The waiting is an active journey. And we participate with God in waiting for an encounter with his presence. And actually, we're being transformed in the waiting. But the frustration of John's baptism is that actually it, it doesn't really transform us from the inside out. It tries to offer us a transformation that's quite external. Like, I'm going to get washed, but am I really transformed? I, I was baptized as a child. Anyone else baptized as a baby? Anyone remember that? Hands in the air? No. So we had this experience of being baptized, and I'm an Anglican. I believe in child baptism, just to be clear. But, um, but there's something about the child baptism which seems strange, because you get baptized as a child when you're innocent and clean and pure, and then you become an adult and you make all these mistakes and you don't feel clean and pure anymore. You think, I need my baptism the other way around, and now I need to get washed. Then I was like, I was kind of clean already. So it's a strange journey for us to kind of start with baptism and then find that life tends to go off course. You know, think about the, the River Jordan here in this, in this jar. I know it's disappointing, but there we go. This is the River Jordan for today's example. You know, and, and, and you know, in our lives, there will be this sort of kind of, kind of sock under the bed experience. These are actually one of, one of Skye's unwashed um, sports socks. And uh, you know, she has this habit of taking off her socks outside for some reason and walking around. I don't know, other young sports people tend to do that. Taking, kicking off your shoes and just wandering around on Astro. It's pretty miserable. You know, but in our adult lives, there's all sorts of socks under the bed, you know, things we don't want people to see, things that are kind of grubby and dirty, things that we would describe as sin. And you know, our, our intention in baptism and John's call was to kind of get in the water you know, and, and kind of get clean. The, the, the trouble is I'm, I'm not really any cleaner right now than I was before I got in the water. The water's not quite as clean as it was before. And, and now I've just got a dirty wet sock. And I can get back in the water and again, I can kind of do another, another attempt at washing away all of that sin and mess. The trouble is that I've just got the same amount of sin and mess of just now still wet. You know, and the, the trouble about the sort of religious baptism is this idea that it's a great sign, it's a, it's a powerful sign, and we all kind of long for it in different ways in our lives. But is it really clearing us? Isn't one of the great disappointments of the Christian life that people who are baptized believers and, you know, talk about kind of baptism and how transformed they are, that's still looking a bit solid? Isn't that our disappointment with ourselves? That actually we kind of, we've done all this stuff. But do we really, are we really any better? You know, an outward sign of an inward change? Or is it just an outward sign? And not really very much inward change. You know, the, the great challenge of, of the Christian faith is this idea that we kind of, we do it. You know, and I, um, you know, I love kind of Christian conferences. I've done a few this week, you know, and I get, I get really excited. I look at the program. I think about who I want to listen to. And, you know, I'll be like, yes, this is going to be a moment of great transformation. I get all G'd up for it. And then I'll cycle home and, you know, be annoyed or flick the V's at someone who's cut up my path on my bicycle or, you know, be grumpy with my kids or something, you know, you're like, oh, I've just spent all this time 
you know, steeped in this religious experience, but am I, am I really changed? Have I been transformed? You know, this season in the life of the church, it's, you know, I keep saying, it, we, we're wrestling in the church with all sorts of major things. And we can think a lot about governance and, and order and, and issues of doctrine, and they're all really, really important. But are they going to save the church? You know, are, are we going to sort of righteous ourselves out of all the problems that we're in? It seems to me we're probably not. I mean, all those things are significant, but the thing that we really need is a change that really transforms us. And so we find a baptism here, a second baptism. Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tries to deter him, it says. It'd be kind of embarrassing to kind of be the baptizer and then have someone arrive who just doesn't need baptism but insists on it. Be like going to the doctor and saying, I, I really need treatment. And the doctor be going, No, you're really fine. And, and no, no, you're, I really want some treatment. And the doctor going, No, no, I really can't treat you because there's actually nothing wrong with you. And that's the kind of discourse between John and Jesus. John is calling for people to repent, which comes from the Greek metanoia, which means to have a kind of complete change of heart, to, to change your mind. And yet Jesus didn't need it to have his mind changed. Jesus didn't need to repent and turn away from his sins because he was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So this is strange interaction where John's sort of saying, no, Jesus, which is also kind of awkward because John's been anticipating the Messiah's arrival and now he's having a, a bit of a discordant conversation with him. But then Jesus insists and says, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what Jesus is saying, that we're going to fulfill righteousness by identifying here with purity. I'm not identifying with sin. I'm identifying with purity, and I'm identifying with the sign of baptism because I'm the fulfillment of the baptism that you're offering. So John is offering a, a kind of half-cocked baptism that, that basically says what we hope is going to happen a baptism for repentance, but Jesus is going to do a baptism which is about the fulfillment of righteousness. In fact, it's a revelation of righteousness. So, you know, in the spirit of things, I've got this ball of mud here, and, 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 and when we drop it in the water, you know, it just doesn't seem like much, but, you know, out of this revelation of righteousness, something, you know, pure was re revealed pure gold that actually Jesus comes up out of the water and his identity is publicly affirmed by God himself it says a voice came from heaven the spirit of God descended like a dove and lighted on him it brought illumination and God said this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, but Jesus' baptism was a, a baptism of the revelation of righteousness, which is so fundamental because without a revelation of righteousness, there was no real cleansing. We can't get clean, dirty water. We can't scrub ourselves clean from the inside out. What we need is a transformation that only can come through the one who is righteous for our sake. The real power is in the promise. This ring, my wedding ring, 
is a sign of promise. And when I marry people, I pray, pray a prayer of blessing on these rings. I'm not sure quite, I believe in sort of praying for inanimate objects on that level. But publicly, I'm making a declaration around the, the, the ring itself as a sign of the promise of God and the sign that the promise is being made one partner to the other about a vow and covenant that they're agreeing to. When Jesus went into the waters of baptism, he was making a vow and covenant to fulfill God's vow and covenant that began with Abraham, that God would be for the people and would bring them to restoration. And so when he goes down into the waters and comes back up again, it, righteousness is revealed. There's a revelation of righteousness which makes this covenant promise possible. John's baptism is a, an impotent baptism. It cannot transform you. In Acts 2.38, Peter says, Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Because actually a baptism in the name of Jesus Christ was the only one that could cleanse you of all sin. If we go into the uh, 1 Peter 3 passage, you'll see this kind of made more clear. Verse 18, For Christ died for the sin once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And today is what's called Passion Sunday in the church. We have Passion Sunday, Palm Sunday, and then Easter Sunday in that order. And Passion Sunday is so significant because it's the beginning of Jesus' journey towards the cross. And it's called Passion because that passion is the demonstration of God's absolute love for us. Not Jesus' absolute love for us. Jesus is part of the Godhead. But God's absolute love for us, that God would give up himself for our sake. He would sacrifice his son for our sake. So God's passion, God's power is demonstrated in that first baptism as a revelation about the nature of God's goodness and therefore God's ability to sacrifice himself for our sins, to bring real heart change. I um, spent a bit of time in lockdown on my parents-in-law's farm. In fact, I, I went for the weekend and I came back four months later. And uh, whilst I was out there, I wasn't quite sure, you know, what to do with myself, but we did have a metal detector uh, in the cupboard, and I decided I'd spend some time metal detecting on the farm. It didn't start well, I'll be honest. I found a lot of bottle tops and general pieces of scrap metal, and I thought I might be wasting my time, but after a few YouTubes, I realized that I was doing it wrong, and then, uh, and then actually started having some success. Now, I'll be honest with you, I never actually found any gold, but I, uh, I know, but I did find some real silver coins, some, 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 a few real silver coins. I found a lot of coins which were made of mixed metals, particularly nickel. And, you know, they just don't survive the test of time. And they gradually corrode under the ground. And so you get them out and they're kind of as thick as they are wide. And you have to put them in vinegar and salt water for a time to kind of corrode the corrosion in order to reveal something of the original maker of the coin. By that time, there's probably hardly anything left to see. But when you pull a real silver coin out of the ground, they're actually they're surprisingly well kept. If you put a gold coin out of the ground, they could be, you know, a thousand years old. They could be these things called slaters, and they're pretty much exactly as they ever were. Gold just doesn't corrupt, it doesn't corrode. And it's an amazing sort of sense by which the revelation in baptism of the personhood of Jesus is a revelation of that purity of spirit. Doesn't, there's no corruption, there's no corrosion, there's no need for vinegar and salt. 
there's just this sense of actually he's the only one who can stand in my stead who could bring me the kind of cleansing and restoration that I really need I think about that kind of strange cycle in the Christian life that we often fall into when we move from God's dependence to independence and, and that's really what I want to focus on in the second half of this evening's talk because it seems to me that, that many of us in the Christian life continue this process of still trying to wash our socks ourselves you know that, that despite the impotence of John's baptism in our own way we keep on trying to work that one out I'm just going to keep on trying to wash my socks and, and actually, many of us have received the baptism, not just the, the act of baptism, but if you like, the spiritual baptism that Jesus offers us. And we exchange that over time for a much more self-orientated gospel, that we start trying to wash our own socks, and we've exchanged grace for some sort of orientation around working for grace. You know, once we were far off and God brought us home, but now we're home, we have to kind of work for the love of God. And for some of us, that will be much more powerful as a motif than for others. And that can link to our story of origin, our family story. It could have been that we believed that we had a place when we did something worthwhile or worthy. But we need to be really careful that we don't lose sight of God's love for us and then exchange that absolute acceptance and transformation for something that makes us slaves rather than sons and daughters. I, I coached. Uh, in a bit of my spare time some very successful but generally very unhappy men aged between 40 and 70 and if I was going to pinpoint one thing that I saw over and over again it was this idea that if I can get success then I'll get secure if I just get one more win one more promotion one more certification one more um, you know salary increase one more bonus then you know then I'll be secure then I'll be able to stop and actually, it's one of the greatest lies you'll ever be told. That there's no way of successing yourself to transformation. There's no way of successing yourself to security. In fact, the opposite is true. In many ways, the more successful you become, the more insecure you also become. And therefore, some of the most successful people in our society are also the most insecure in our society. They've got very clever ways of hiding that insecurity, and they've got amazing capacity to control their environment to make them look secure, but the reality is they're deeply insecure. Talk a bit about American politics at the moment and extrapolate that a bit further, but I don't want to offend any Americans. The, the, the key point here is that actually that security itself breeds success, not success breeds security. That the, the start of of Matthew's gospel, what we have is a reality whereby Jesus has not yet performed a single miracle. Jesus has not yet done anything notable. Jesus is, he's 30 years old. He is a carpenter. I hope he was a good one, but I don't know. He's not famous because of his carpentry. Uh, Jesus was a local boy in Nazareth, not a particularly salubrious part of the country by all accounts. He was a, a Galilean. They were like people who lived in Norfolk. And again, I'm not going there because I don't want to offend anyone from Norfolk. But the assumption here was about parochialism, 
the assumption of those who lived in Jerusalem was that people from Galilee didn't know what they were talking about. Many people thought Jesus was just mad. The key point is that Jesus had no success of his own to make himself secure. He had no success to lean on. I mean, he went on to great success. But that wasn't about character affirmation because that had already happened. When God opens heaven and alights on Jesus in the Holy Spirit and said, this is, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased, it was before he'd done anything at all. And so much of this life we spend being instrumentalized by the success that we're seeking rather than in living out of the identity that we've already received from God. You know, if we could live out from that identity as Jesus did, we would have a far more transformative effect on the world around us and our churches themselves would be changed. Would, Jesus ministered with the confidence of one who could transform water into wine, mud to clean, broken to unbroken. You know, Jesus ministered with the confidence of God because he was the son of God and knew the love of God and the pleasure of God in his action. What he wasn't doing was working for the love of God or working for the pleasure of God or walk, working for the confidence of God in action. And when we receive this baptism of Christ, we move dynamically away from the baptism of John. And I want to ask you tonight, do you know the baptism of Jesus, or are you still working on the baptism of John? You know, I like John in many ways, but on other levels, he's a tryhard. You know, he's trying hard. And everyone who followed John's baptism were also trying hard, and there's lots of benefit in trying hard. But there's also not a lot of success in trying hard if what you're trying hard to achieve is unachievable. And what Peter is saying here is actually it is unachievable to find righteousness any other way. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. He's actually saying, look, Noah's baptism didn't really save many people. But this baptism in Christ will save you. This is the righteousness that is offered. A good conscience. It's a good conscience towards God. It saves you, it says in verse 21, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven, is at God's right hand, with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. He's saying, this baptism, Jesus' baptism, will save you because Jesus is the only one with the power to give you that sanctity and that confidence to live by. And I guess as we approach Easter, Passion Sunday, then Palm Sunday, it's about us remembering again the distinctiveness of the baptism that Jesus is offering us today. The absolute nature of Jesus in a world which is, you know, really offering you many pathways. I, I, I find it um, really, really important, again, to go back to that reality that it's not tryhards who are saved. And I wonder whether in all of us there's that feeling of injustice around a statement like that. You know, my children say to me, you know, Dad, you know, surely really good people who try really hard are, you know, going to go to heaven. 
And, you know, and every bone in my body wants to say yes. Yeah, of course, everyone who's like kind and good and tries really hard goes to heaven. But when I read the Bible, I don't see that to be the case. What I see is actually those who recognize their inability to save themselves because of their brokenness and sinfulness, but trust in the righteousness that God offers them in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that are saved. That no one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus says, because no amount of washing, no amount of working, no amount of attempting to find security through success will actually be enough to get the stains out of the cloth. And we are in danger always colluding with that idea that God just wants us to work harder and kind of be more earnest and therefore do better and then he'll be more pleased with us. But God couldn't be more pleased with us because when we've received the baptism of Jesus, God sees us through the lens of Jesus. And so he says to us, this is my son or this is my daughter whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. You could have done nothing. You might well have done nothing. In fact, you might have done worse than nothing. But when you receive the baptism of Jesus, that's just how God sees you. It's so unjust. You see, the gospel isn't a fair gospel by human estimation. It's a gracious gospel. And it means that, that we have this experience of knowing what it is to be sons and daughters of God really against the flow of our energy and work. Sometimes spend time with people at the end of, end of life. It's my privilege. But you know, sometimes there's that sort of feeling of like, oh, you're going to try and sneak in at the end. You know, I'm delighted if they do, but there's a sort of injustice to it. You know, oh, will you pray for me that I, I want to receive Jesus? Well, how old are you? Oh, I'm 80. Well, I mean, you could have done it a bit earlier. Look, I'm dying, all right? Just pray for me. <laughs> it's a privilege to help people. But doesn't it provoke that feeling of, like, is, is this fair? Just like that older brother in the story of the prodigal. Look. This son of yours, he's squandered all of your wealth on wild living, and yet he's returned home when you've placed a robe on his shoulders, you've killed a fattened calf, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and I haven't even had a goat to eat. We feel that sense. Oh, but that's the gospel. It's unjust. It's recklessly graceful. And it's available to each of us. The weird thing is that when it comes to the baptism of Jesus, some of us can stand off and say, I don't want a piece of that. I want John's gospel. I want John's baptism. I just feel like I should work harder. Then I'll know I've really earned grace. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. But once you've received it, exercising faith from it is the most powerful thing you'll ever do in your life. I, I, I'm longing to get back to that place of grace, you know, and I, I, I know I struggle because I found myself bouncing away from grace all the time. But I would tell you this, in my estimation of my own ministry as a Christian leader, there's never a more powerful place to be than the place of recognizing that I've received the grace of Jesus. No amount of study, no amount of labor, no amount of prayer, no amount of intention, no amount of worship will transform my leadership like a remembrance that I'm a sinner and I need to be washed. And it's not my power or my authority or my labor that does it, it's the reckless love of God just for me. And if you come back to that place every day, you experience the sort of transformation that leads to life.
In Acts 19.3, Paul asks, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. We need to do that regularly. Lord, I've messed up. I know I need saving. But then a crossroads exists to whether we decide to try and save ourselves or whether we'll actually let Christ save us. The only one who can and the only one who will. I'm going to worship in just a moment, but there's four things I want you to think about. Have you been baptized? As in, have you been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ? If you haven't, I think we should baptize you. Not now, and not with that water, but <laughs> I'd love to start a conversation with you about baptism. I was baptized as a child, and that wasn't particularly significant for me, although I do believe that God does something when we baptize children. But I reaffirmed my baptismal vows as an adult at 24, and it was the most powerful moment, if you like, in my spiritual journey. That might be available to you too, and might be something you want to engage in. The second thing is the need to um, reaffirm, if you like, publicly, not necessarily through baptism, but in the way in which you describe your baptism, what you believe about baptism. Now, people often say, have you been baptized? Yes, I have. How are you going to explain that? How are you going to talk about baptism? Can you talk about a baptism for repentance and a baptism that reveals righteousness and then a baptism in the Holy Spirit? We need to reaffirm publicly and then reaffirm personally the baptism that we've received before God. The enemy always tries to get in and says, you know what, you've got to work a bit harder you're not laboring enough, you're not holy enough, God's not going to like you like this, you've got to improve yourself in order to get access to heaven. You've got to tell the devil the baptism that you've received. And that is a baptism which is not dependent on your righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness alone. And fourthly, we need to receive a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not necessary for us to receive salvation, in a sense, that we receive salvation through our trust in Christ and the baptism in his blood. What does the baptism of the Holy Spirit mean? Well, that's another sermon we're not going to go into right now. But when you receive the baptism in the name of Jesus, you receive a baptism in the Holy Spirit, even if you don't speak in tongues or necessarily know what that means. But one of the most amazing things about experiencing the Holy Spirit again is like, a manifestation of what that baptism looks like. And we can be baptized in the Holy Spirit multiple times. There's only one baptism, if you like, in faith, but there are multiple experiences of being washed through by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can encounter him in the church, in our room, rooms in times of prayer, and together in twos or threes. So we can, we can seek multiple baptisms in the power of the Holy Spirit. Technically, there's only one baptism. We're saying this for the record and for the bishops who are listening. But there are multiple experiences of being baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would want you to know that God wants you to experience more of him today. Why don't we stand? We're going to worship. We're going to pray a little bit together and ask God to come and baptize us afresh in his Holy Spirit today.
Why don't we just acknowledge where we are with the Lord. Jesus, we uh, find ourselves so often like this dirty sock. And um, Lord, you know how we feel in our hearts, that we are not good enough, that we haven't worked hard enough, that we haven't cleaned ourselves enough. Lord, we repent from all that's past, but Lord, we're choosing now to stop trying to wash away our own sin. And instead, we're trusting in the promise of the baptism that brought revelation, revelation in you as the spotless son of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus, we receive again an affirmation of the baptism that we receive in your name as we put our trust in you. We pray, Lord, you take away our self-righteousness and give us a, a righteousness that's born of God and for his glory. And Father, we pray now that you would Baptize us afresh in your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Spirit on us again today, Lord. Affirm the baptism we've received in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and for the adoption into the family of God as his children. And release, Lord, the power and authority that comes through standing in his stead. Affirm us, Father, as the forgiven and delivered people of God today and help us to exercise the ministry of the kingdom of God that you've appointed us to through that same baptism. I'm going to just join us in worship or open your hands and wait for the Spirit of God just to touch you. You might feel that you would like someone to pray with you, in which case we'd love to pray with you here and just ask God would affirm that baptism if you find yourself particularly wandering away from grace then today is an opportunity for you to step back in and receive the affirmation of grace again and we'll pray for you uh, in this next 10 or 15 minutes we've got time to worship and again there might be some of you who have prophetic words you want to share just come and see me and we'll see if we can facilitate that too so be open to what God is doing as we worship together